All right, welcome back to another episode of Obsessed with Death. Please continue to rate, review, subscribe. Um, I haven't checked in a while, but if you haven't, follow us on Spotify, listen to us on Spotify. Um, obviously, you can get your podcast wherever you're, you're listening from right now, but if uh, Spotify is your main spot, we are on there, and uh, give us a follow. Either way, thank you for tuning back in. Um, this is a fun one. The world's ending, so why not do an episode about doomsday prepping? I mean, honestly, I don't want to do a long intro here, but the world's ending. It's almost over, people. So whatever it is <laughs> you're trying to do, do it, because it's almost over. And if you're trying to prepare for the end, this episode is for you. Um, we recorded it a while ago. I don't remember everything we talk about, but I definitely remember at least being told how and what to pack in the we 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 go over emergency to go bags um so if that's something you're into and then just you know a fun chat about celebrating the end of the world um that's it okay enjoy All right, so yeah, so basically the first question that I have for everybody is what is your relationship with towards death? Um, do you think about it a lot? Are you worried about it? Uh, how do you feel? Well, it's uh, it's actually not something I think about very much or that I tend to worry about it. I will say it's interesting to me because I read a uh, an article or maybe it was a Twitter thread by somebody successful and I wish I could remember who it was who talked about how when he was younger he had convinced himself that he was he was definitely destined to die like early like fairly young mm -hmm. and that this kind of conceit that he had had pushed him to um you know take risks and to achieve and, and stuff like this and i thought it was interesting because i i had that same kind of conceit i was sort of convinced myself you know in high school that i was probably going to die young and that I should just yellow. Um, and so I did. And, and so I took, uh, I think, risk with my, you know, with my career and with my life um, that I, I wouldn't have taken. I kind of optimized for, for novelty and for staying out of my comfort zone. And I, I can't remember when I just completely um, abandoned that particular conceit, but it was probably sometime, you know, in my early 20s in grad school or after grad school, I sort of realized that, you know, that was, that was kind of silly and, and an interesting, um, it, it did, it did useful things for me, but like, it wasn't a real thing. <laughs> sure. Do, do you know, or could you think of maybe something specific that made you sort of think of why you felt like you were going to die young or, or what that, where that feeling came from? I, I don't remember, you know, I just don't remember. I mean, I've always been, I've always been religious. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I've always been a believer. 
Yeah. And I, I don't know if I, if I thought that, you know, God was like speaking to me and telling me this, or if I, if I convinced myself of that, you know, I just, I don't really remember the provenance. There's not really an interesting origin story for that. It's just kind of a thing that I affected the way sure. that one affects, you know, idiosyncratic things in high school, you know, wearing a monocle or, or whatever <laughs> other kind of bizarre. I, I never yeah. wore a monocle, but uh, I have a good friend that wore one for a while. Oh, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, um, I, I just, I, I affected it as a kid, the way that kids affect things, I think uh, is probably the best way to put it. Sure. And then do you, do you feel like your faith and being young and like, obviously having religion that sort of I would assume affected your belief and your feelings towards death as well right yeah I mean I um you know the the I mean I don't I so you know I'll because this is a podcast about death I'll I'll be a little more kind of confessional um yeah please uh, and and speak about my faith in a way that I I don't normally um I I guess to, to to be lame about it I would say it's a little bit off-brand um, for me, because I mostly do tech and stuff like this, but, but I'm comfortable speaking about it. Um, you know, so, so anyway, um, yeah, you know, the, the Christian life is you're, you're supposed to kind of live as, as if you're already dead, you know, dead to the world and, and, and all this kind of thing. And, you know, this is a, um, so I, I, I guess it's like, you know, that, that, like I said, it was an affectation is is a way into living as if one's already dead you know if you're, if you're living as if you're you're gonna die soon um you know that's not too many jumps away from from living as if you're already dead or dead to the world and so that was i guess maybe my way into that that attitude because when you're young it's just it's you know you're, especially if you're kind of you want you want more of life you you're interested in experiences and in novelty and and in achievements it's kind of hard to to convince yourself to live as if you're already dead i mean that just doesn't it doesn't quite jive with it so i guess maybe i could say that was my my way into that particular christian headspace sure and do you think that maybe religion sort of made you realize earlier than others like that death is something that's going to happen because i feel like it took me a while to realize you know that I'm going to die one day, you know, like you kind of have that feeling, mm -hmm. you know, somebody in your family dies or whatever that situation is where it does eventually click, but then you still don't really, at least for me, you, you don't really think about it a ton. And then once obviously you get older and older, the, the more it sort of just really gets cemented in there that like, Oh yeah, this could be over tomorrow. This, you know, this is going to end and it's going by quicker and quicker. I think, uh, or I'm at least assuming that religion maybe to some people, it's sort of imprints that feeling that death is real and going to happen maybe sooner than others. I think religion is a part of it. I also think um, probably, I mean, it, look, certainly there was a lot of talk of death, you know, in my, not a lot of talk of death in my church, but enough. And, yeah. and the churches that I grew up in, I, I grew up Pentecostal and, and they were fairly kind of apocalyptic, um, some of them, you know, I mean, it wasn't like super duper apocalypse cult, but that that's a strain. Um, yeah. It's in there, you know, so it's not just... Um, you know, individual death, but but kind of civilizational death is sort of baked into the picture there. But but I would say the other factor I think that mattered for me was I've always been a hunter. 
-hmm. I have killed animals. You know, I have um, the first squirrel that I ever shot. I was probably nine and I shot it out of a tree with a 22 uh, on a hunt with my dad. And so this animal laid, my dad was really proud of me for my first kill. And this animal was at the base of this tree. And it was kind of like, you know, squawking out and was obviously in distress because it had a bullet in it. And dad's mm -hmm. like, look, this is hard, but you got to finish him off. Like it's the, yeah. it's the humane thing to do. So I had to smash this thing's head in with the heel of my boot, you know, and finish it off while it's like crying and thrashing. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, my dad himself had the, the land that we hunted on, he had lived there and tended animals and had to slaughter goats and, you know, had to slaughter other animals. And, you know, when you slaughter a goat, you kind of got to calm it down and, and sing to it and make it feel safe. And then you slit its throat. Um, because if the goat is agitated or exercised, then it's, the meat's going to taste gamey. It's going to have hormones and stuff like this. So this, this cycle of um, seeing this cycle in this rural aspect, you know, being a hunter, taking, taking animal lives, uh, it, it brings you face to face with mortality at a young age because it's not an abstract thing. You're like, I literally just did this. This thing was alive and I just murdered it to death. And like now it's dead. And now I'm going to take the body back and me and my cousin or me and my dad are going to strip all the hide off and cut the head off and cut, you know, it's brutal. You know, we're going to take the viscera out and then we're going to cook it and then we're going to eat the thing. Yeah. Um, you know, and so that's all, that's all part of that cycle. And that, that ritual of killing this animal, rendering it up, then eating it, um, is, it's uh, it like it, it it integrates you, you know, with that in a way that I think people don't get now. Did you did that all all sort of just like come natural to you as well, like just growing up and like having a dad that also hunted, or did you have like any like hesitation to finishing off that squirrel? Like, how how did you feel? Sure. About? Look, I mean, unless you're a sociopath, it it costs you something. Sure. You know, there yeah. are, and, and you know, and, and I, I mean, I don't say that like as a joke. There are real sociopaths, and some of them are, you know, we employ them in the military at high levels to you know to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um. You know, there's a there's a, a theory that like some of these guys are you know really high functional you know, sociopaths and, and whatnot. Some of them are, some of them are not. But at any rate, they, they have a role to play in culture. I, I, it's kind of weird that I'm going out of my way to be non-judgmental about sociopathy, but nonetheless, <laughs> um, there's a reason the dark triangle exists. Um, but, you know, if you're not a sociopath or, or a psychopath, or so if you, if you don't, if you're not somebody that lacks, if you've got the normal mechanisms and equipment, um, then it hurts you. It costs you something. Yeah. Uh, and, and there can be a weird mix. I mean, one of, one of my craziest experiences as an adult was I went on a knife hunt, uh, for, for wild boar and I stabbed a number of wild boar to death. And, and that was, uh, that was just really wild. I mean, these, these, these pigs, now they're trying to kill you. They've got tusks and they would just as soon kill you as look at you. And, but they, they're really smart animals and there's a kind of, um, uh, I don't want to, I mean, it's, it's going to sound bad. There's a kind of humanity to like their eyes, you know, there is, sure. a, um, there's a, there's a, there's something there, you know, these things are just really intelligent, more so even than dogs. 
And yeah. so when you're stabbing this boar, you can see that this thing is aware of what's going on. It's in extreme distress and it's got like a, it's got an inner life and you're snuffing it out with like a large knife and all yeah. of that's there. And all of that, um, it costs you something, you know, you, you, um, you have to push through something to do it. And I didn't feel guilty about it, but I definitely knew that I had like killed a thing that lived and had thoughts and, you know, some number of plans and hopes and dreams. I mean, I certainly think that sentience is on a spectrum, you know, with animals to humans and, you yeah. know, the thing participated in some kind of society and had offspring and, you know, this kind of thing. And I, I felt a kinship with it um, at that close range or something about killing at that close range versus killing, you know, even with a rifle. Um, and sure. and when I was of being so close to it, I would imagine. Yeah. A lot different. Yeah. And when I was done and when the hunt was over, I went back to the lodge and one of the one of the people that worked at the lodge uh, where these hunts, you know, went out of. Now, I, I was there for a different kind of hunt, and the boar thing was just like a one off. Um, but we, I was duck hunting at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but she, she said, she asked me, she's like, So, how did you, how did you feel about that? And I was like, Well, you know, that was the thing, it was the thing I did. I was like, I'm still kind of processing it, but I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm fine, you know. Yeah. Um, she's like, It really messes some people up. Some people like are like really messed up after you know, after they do a knife kill like that. And so then I was like, okay, well, what does it say about me that like, I wasn't messed up. And then after the first one, or maybe the second, I enjoyed it and was ready to kind of keep going in a weird way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, does that make me a bad person? You know, or like, do, where does where does it put me on the spectrum of bad people that, sure. you know, I initially pushed through something with the first one or two kills and then I would have just stayed out there all day, um, you know, because there was like a, there's also danger to it. I mean, these animals are dangerous. Like they'll just kill you, oh, yeah. um, you know? So, so there was an element of danger with every one of the kills that was kind of interesting to me and exciting. Um, but yeah, you know, that's, that's a, uh, that, that feeling of that intimacy of taking a, a life of a wild animal or another human in battle. That's a thing that, is is kind of baked into our dna and that that our ancestors knew and lived with and we don't have that anymore and i'll tell you the other thing that was interesting about that boar hunt man is that um there was a couple of other people there and there was a kind of sacredness to it um i felt like it was a it was a totally novel experience and i i felt like we were do like i can see how um uh, animal sacrifice was at the center of so much like world religion um, and so many different kinds of religions because that kind of collective thing where the guys are helping me to restrain this animal or the dogs are there restraining it and you know other people are kind of involved in it and I'm just like the knife hand there was a kind of a weird um, atmosphere uh, that is hard to describe but it felt a little bit like um like like the sacred somehow you know it was kind of ineffable and kind of strange and, and unique that is super interesting yeah i could i could totally see that i mean this like community kind of vibe between everybody together and um, yeah that's super interesting you you mentioned um a little bit earlier that 
this the, when you were growing up in religion that there was this almost apocalyptic type vibe to what you were a part of and not that I, I i necessarily think that you need to compare the two but it did sort of make me think of the fact that the reason i i, I found you was through this prepping society basically that you're a part of and I think I would, I at least assume and correct me, please, if I'm wrong, but that part of prepping is this fear of some sort of catastrophic apocalyptic type idea that this, that this could happen. Do you think that maybe being a part of that when you were younger pushed you towards that path of prepping and, and being prepared for whatever it is? Um, you know, these people or whoever it is, is, is worried about and who, and who is prepping? Yeah, I, I think absolutely that has to be true. I mean, I, I was also grew up on the Louisiana Gulf Coast and we did hurricane prepping, which we didn't call it prepping. It was just hurricane supplies. And, yeah. You know, and I was a boy scout and the motto was be prepared. I was, a, I didn't quite make Eagle. I was a life scout and I was really involved in boy scouts and loved it. And so I was always kind of, you know, interested in preparedness through that. But I think the apocalyptic piece is just a, a willingness to seriously entertain that, that all the systems that I depend on and, and the structures that, that I take, that we all take for granted, um, political structures, scientific, institutional, all that, all that could be temporary. You know, the, yeah. the, not that it is temporary. Well, the, the apocalyptic is the truth. The committed one says that all that is temporary, that it's temporary and it's all going to pass away. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and so whatever your relationship to that claim, if you're kind of a maximalist about it um, or, or what, which I'm not. Um, I mean, I guess I, I guess I would say I am on a long enough time scale, um, but then I guess we all are, too but I'm not like an imminent, like apocalypticist, you know, kind of, kind of dude. Um, it, it forces you, or it's a culture in which one takes very seriously it, as a group, um, individually with your parents, with your elders, with your Sunday school teachers, you're, you're, you, you have a practice of taking seriously the idea on a regular basis that, that reality could just kind of go bye-bye and, you know, um, a different state of affairs could pertain that's radically different than the one that we all currently live under. Um, so sure. that it habituates you to that. So it seems like you were first sort of introduced to prepping, although it wasn't called that at the time, it was just for hurricane season, basically. Yeah, that would have been my my kind of well. I mean, yes and no. Like there was hurricane prepping. You know, my I had heard stories of my grandparents uh, burying barrels of rice because they thought the communists were going to invade in the fifties, and so there was a certain amount of like kind of uh, right wing anti communist thing in the in the bloodline. I never saw any of these barrels of rice, mm-hmm. um, and, and and on my that was on my dad's side, and on my mom's side. Uh, my step grandfather bought a nuclear bunker and had it buried wow. in his backyard, and so he had this like suburban backyard, and there was this giant round bunker at one point buried in his backyard, and my grandmother uh, thought that it was um, kind of out of control. I could tell she thought that was a weird thing 
for him to spend money on. Yeah. Um, and so he bought it. And it was, I'll never forget. I saw it. I saw it before it was covered with dirt when it went into the ground. It was shaped like a hand grenade. It was shaped like a round hand grenade. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a weird kind of shape. And it, and it had like a, uh, where the hand grenade pin would be on the top where the, the mech, where the mechanism, you know, for, for releasing it would be was like a, that was the portal on the top and you could like go down into it and there were there was a bench that went all the way around and the idea was that you would store it for food and this was during the cold war so this would have been in the 80s in the early 80s you know in the reagan era when people were doing you know um whatever kind of cold war you know bomb drills and stuff so he yeah. was in mississippi and so he bought this thing and and I remember my grandmother, I overheard her tell my mom, she's like, yeah, it's strange. He just likes to go out there and sit in it. <laughs> and I, I kind of love that. I love it. Like I yeah. was a kid, but the thought of, of this guy just like, it, as, I, I refer to him this way because we didn't have that much of a relationship. He was a step granddad. Um, they divorced when I was like in maybe middle school or something. So I never knew him like super well. Uh, he was kind of a weird dude, but but uh, just the idea of him like sitting out there, just going out there and sitting in his bunker, man. Yeah. Um, I, I thought it was strange, and I felt sorry for him, but also kind of jealous. You know, I was <laughs> yeah. like, that would be cool to just be able to go out and sit in the weird round hand grenade shaped bunker and just and she would like she my my grandmother was like yeah i don't know what he does out there he just like sits in his bunker Um, yeah i mean you gotta figure it's like especially you know uh, older men it's like they just need their their space they need a place to go just like a place to just relax and his happened to be a nuclear bunker and i don't think there's anything wrong with that that was his happy place you know that was the man's (laughs) happy place but there's also i think that's a great yeah it's a great spot there's also, I think about this sometimes when I'm, um, I, I like to collect knives and hatchets and axes and other edge tools, you know, and I have like some nice ones and, and you know, I, I, I like to fondle them. You know, I like to just kind of like hang on to like a nice fixed blade and feel like the wood um, yeah. and the steel, you know, I just like, I'm a very tactile person. I'm, I like, I like fidgets, you know, but my fidgets are like, you know, my Leatherman tool, I fidget with it all the time. Mm-hmm. It makes my wife and kids nervous because I always have this Leatherman tool out. I'm just kind of flicking these, you know, so I'm a yeah. fidgeter and, you know, I like to fidget with, with, with some of these kinds of things, but it also gives me like a feeling, like a good feeling of like control and safety because these things are preps and they're tools and I know how to use them and I'm trained. I know how to maintain them. I know how to put an yeah. edge on it, you know, um, all that kind of stuff. So there's a, there's a, a, a satisfaction that comes from having preps and from just sitting with them, you know, just being with your preps and preppers talk about this. This is the thing that preppers will talk about, about that yeah. satisfaction that comes from like going into the, to the room with all the stock and seeing all the stock and feeling like, yeah, man, I could, I could handle my business, you know, I could, I could deal with a multi-month grid down or whatever, but there's a good feeling there. Sure. Okay. So when, and, and I, and I, again, I, I totally understand that. I mean, that's just kind of what I felt like in the, in the little bit of research that I've done. And you you obviously there's TV shows, you hear people talk about prepping and all these different things and you just kind of it it to me it always felt like oh well this is a comfort thing 
I mean, obviously you seem to have enjoyment, obviously with certain tools and, and whatever that is as well. And I think that that's, there's, I think a lot of people have those interests and they're not preppers, but I think the idea of just being, you know, people like to be organized. People like to just be prepared and there's a comfort in that. And I felt at least from what I've read and seen, that seems to be a major part of it. Not like there's these crazy conspiracies or, or you're just, you're waiting for the world to collapse or whatever. It's just, no, it just, it just brings me comfort. So yeah, that's, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah. That's a, that's a major factor. And I think it's one reason why there are certain like notorious control freak personality types that are attracted to it. So say computer programmers, yeah, uh, computer programmers love that they have control over the machine. The machine doesn't do anything that you didn't tell it to do. Mm. and programmers often tech tech nerds will get into prepping and they're just kind of it just jibes with <clears throat> with that impulse uh, to manage and to control to make lists um to design solutions and so that's a kind of a mindset and there but there's two there's multiple things going on there's there is the comfort that comes from having your preps in order then there is prepping and shopping as a soothing behavior that people do when they're stressed. And that second one is, is quite toxic. Yeah. Uh, and anybody can get caught in that loop. And I have been caught in it at times myself. And it's something that I fight. You know, you see some crazy bit of news. Um, recently, it's like Russia is building up forces in Ukraine or something, right? And you're yeah. like, something's gonna kick off. And then you just get the credit card out and you just start just, you know, and like, don't do that, you know, that's, but it feels good. But then you, what happens? You get into this spiral where, like, um, you know, you overspend, and that makes you feel more out of control. And so, what do you do? You go back to the prepping website. You start, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know. So you repeat the cycle. And so that's that's not good. But what's good is to have a list and a plan, and then and that sort of exists independently of the flow of events of the news cycle, whatever. And then to to work your way through it and when it's done to be like yeah man that is sorted that feels good to have that sorted so like my bug out bags for the family and for the kids those literally just got like really thoroughly finished off i mean i did mine first then i did my wife's then i did one for each of my three girls and i finally kind of finished off the last for the two youngest girls probably like four months ago and I like, they're like, those are done projects. They're in my closet. Uh, they're there. Like, I don't have to keep messing with it. And like, that feels pretty good to see them there, to look at them, to know that they're ready. Uh, so. Okay. And so, the, and, and you call these bug out, bug out bags. Is that what it mm -hmm. is? That, yeah. um, and I, is that's just basically what, like, that's, that's basically the essentials. That's like the, if, when, when whatever happens, that's what you grab and kind of go. Yeah, that's, that's a, a set of essentials that's going to get you through, you know, roughly 72 hours of, of some kind of crisis. Now, that's just a rough guideline. And you know, my bug out bag, I could live, I could live, if I could find a food source and, and some water to filter, you know, I could live pretty indefinitely out of it, at least, you know, medium term. Uh, most bug out bags that are used, you don't use 90% of the stuff that's in there. You may use the batteries and the flashlight or something because most people, frankly, are bugging out to a hotel. Uh, in COVID, okay. in the pandemic, all my friends that bugged out in New York and Washington, 
they bunked out to hotels or Airbnb somewhere else in the country. Um, worst case is, is you're in the fires in California, you bug out to a Walmart parking lot in an RV um, yeah. or in a tent where there's some, there's some services, there's some facilities, you may bug out to a shelter uh, where there's some services and facilities. So very, it, it pretty much never happens that you bug out to the woods. But with your bug out bag, you want to tweak it so that if you had to bug out to the woods, you could. So that's just that one bag you're going to grab and go, whether you're getting on a, on a bus to go to a shelter, whether you're getting your car to go to a hotel, or whether you're literally hoofing it into the woods, you know, that bag has the baseline. Gotcha. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, that you say that because I, I, for some reason, my brain immediately just goes to oh, well, this is for you to go to the woods in. I, I don't even yeah. think about the idea that, oh, no, it's just like a bag of things and you could just go to a hotel with it. I don't know why my brain, and maybe that's just like the stigma that I've seen with these like prepping shows or whatever, whenever it's discussed, you just assume that whoever's doing something like that is just getting ready to go into the woods when that's simply just not really the case. Yeah, I mean... I guess what I would say is that you want to build it so that if you did actually have to go to the woods, you could go to the woods, yeah. but, but you do it in the knowledge that you're not gonna have to go to the woods. Like, yeah. you know, um, you're going to go to a hotel worst case, you're going to go to like a FEMA shelter or a Walmart parking lot where there's other, where there's an encampment of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you do this as a comfort thing or do you feel like, was there, was there a moment that you could look back on or think that was that kind of motivated you to start these bug out bags and to start prepping and, and really, I mean, you write for it's preps.com. Is that the, the prepared.com. So prepared. I'm, I'm a contributing editor now. Uh, I, I'm now doing a newsletter on artificial intelligence and like cryptocurrency and kind of, you know, like next, future tech kind of stuff, gotcha. um, but I still contribute to the prepared.com. Yeah. Uh, so I have a, I have a little bit of a prepper origin story that's posted on the prepared.com. If you kind of go back to the blog and look at in my first entry mm -hmm. and I, I didn't, I didn't become like a prepper prepper until the 2008 financial crisis. Gotcha. And at that time I had just sold a website and, and come into some money and I had these um, private banking guys kind of chasing me because they had read about the deal in TechCrunch. And so I, I talked to them uh, before TARP was passed. And yeah, I don't know if you remember the TARP, the bank bailout. Um, sure. It went by the acronym TARP, but it was the Troubled Asset Relief Program. Okay. So <clears throat> the Troubled Asset Relief Program, Congress passed that in, oh, was it, it was 09 um sometime in 09 i think and it was after lehman brothers and the system was in crisis and all this other stuff and sure. and so i had asked uh these bankers for credit suisse you know what do you guys think about tarp is that going to pass and they were just like yeah it's going to pass and i'm like why are you so confident this is going to pass and they're like because it's like everything stops if it doesn't pass and i'm like you know what do you mean? And he's like, well, would you go to work if you didn't get paid? And I'm like, no, he's like, well, nobody's going to be able to get paid at gas stations and grocery stores and, you know, anything across the country and nobody's going to go to work and there will be nothing for you to buy or, you know, <laughs> it's just like yeah. civilization is going to grind to a halt is basically what he's describing, you know, and this is a, 
I'm at the headquarters of, of Credit Suisse in Chicago, and these are like bankers in suits telling me that the world is going to end literally this weekend if they don't pass the TARP. Yeah. And I'm like, should I get cash out of the ATM, like 10 grand or something? And, and the guy's like, that would be a good idea. Wow. And so I was like, okay. Yeah. So, so I kind of became a prepper. Uh, after that, I called my wife. I was like, go get 10 grand out of the bank and and in cash and like sit on it and make sure you got like water and my wife is pregnant at the time um or no she we had just had our our um, our first kid actually um and i was like you know make sure you got water and 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 extra food and you know i was she was in san francisco i was like i'll be back and you know hopefully <laughs> hopefully the world doesn't end yeah um so that that was sort of like my my wake up like prepper story and then i kind of got into the community and you know, I bought a, a, um, a shotgun and of course in San Francisco, you have earthquake supplies. So everybody's got a certain amount of earthquake supplies. Sure. So you know, everybody in San Francisco is a prepper to some degree or another. Um, but, but I started trying to take it to the next level then. Yeah. I mean, to be in that situation where you're just like in this bank and they're basically, I mean, anybody tells you, I mean, it depends, I guess, on who, who exactly is it that's telling you these things. But sure, I mean, somebody like that, that type of situation where they're like, look, this is a possibility. And I think everyone kind of has those feelings. Obviously, the, the, the world has gotten, um, you know, a lot crazier, especially in, pa- in the past few years. Obviously, just I think there's a lot of things to be concerned about, you know, whether it's different countries like Russia, who knows what they're doing, Um climate obviously is a big one um i i i feel like if i was ever to get into the the world of prepping i think my biggest concern would be at least right now would be climate is that something Mm -hmm. that kind of worries you a little bit i mean look i'm i'm in the austin area and we just had the big freeze and yeah and a lot of my friends just lived through we i lived through shtf mini situation you know now i was really lucky we did not lose power but we know a lot of people that lost power for like a week in temperatures where it was dangerously cold and the inside of their apartment was freezing and water was freezing on the walls inside their apartment and we had a lot of people die. I mean, some of the unofficial estimates are in the hundreds. Yeah. So, so, um, hey, my wife is texting here, but, uh, but yeah, I'm, um, right now I'm getting alerts, news alerts about how there's a heat surge and the grid may go down, um, in my area because of the heat. So, you know, we wow. could be talking right here. If, if something happens, that's what it was. Yeah. Um, I mean, my power could literally go out at any moment uh, because of the heat. We're getting notices about this. Yeah. Um, California is is set for probably the worst wildfire season in in living memory. You know, a record yeah. wildfire season. We don't know if it's going to happen, but it's likely. So, so climate is a very big deal, and there's a lot more of it that that's coming down the pike. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, uh, I, I again, I think it's it's got to be top of the list for concerns. I mean, I'm in Arizona. We've got some 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 decent fires happening in Arizona right now. Um, it's it's definitely something to be worried about. And I 
have no plan. <laughs> you know, I feel like, um, you know, the more research that I've done for this episode and just speaking to you, it, it, it does kind of, you know, make me think a little bit more about how just unprepared I am, how most people are just extremely unprepared. Um, I mean, how, how obviously, obviously climate's a big one, but how cons concerned are you? Like, is it something you, you think about daily? Like how, how much are you focused? Like how much time is focused on, on something like this? Right now, um, not a lot because I, I have got a lot of my preps in order. And like I said, um, I, I just, I have a plan and I kind of go through it. So I'm now that I'm not full-time at the prepared, uh, I'm back to treating this like a hobby or like, uh, insurance. Yeah. So, so I'm not a person who, uh, is at this point kind of like full-time and like the prepping lifestyle, whatever, whatever. Um, I'm somebody that has a lot of preps. Uh, and it has a lot of their preps squared away. And I think like a prepper. So for instance, my wife just bought a, she started an office from home and she's a, she's a therapist and she um, uh, got out of her lease, her office lease when COVID started. Mm -hmm. And then we bought an Airstream and she offices out of the Airstream, but the Airstream is also a prep. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that a, the prepper mindset gives you is you see something, you're like, that's a prep, you know, I can use it, but that's also a prep. Sure. Um, and so I certainly, I have that going on all the time, 24 um, seven, you know, I, I, yeah. like we're, we're putting a guest house on the property and it's like, okay, um, we're going to bury a propane tank for it. That's a prep, you know, propane is a great prep. So, mm. so I, I have a, I, I have a, I look through, at my purchases, I look at kind of like certain financial and life decisions I make through a prepping lens, but in terms of how much mental bandwidth uh, prepping itself takes up, I would say, you know, not a whole lot on a day-to-day -day basis. I probably sure. spend more time thinking about random hobbies, like, you know, board games or something than I do. Gotcha. Prepping. Uh, how, what is, you said you had three daughters and obviously whatever you're comfortable talking about, but how do they feel about it? Do they, do they look at you and be like, you know, dads, you said that, that they, they get concerned when you're flipping, excuse me, when you're flipping the, the blades around in your hand or whatever, whatever it is you're doing, how do they feel about the, the, this prepper life that you live? Just to be clear, I don't walk around the house flipping fixed blades, <laughs> you know, like, I'm, I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah that may, but I just want to make sure that's probably how it sounded. Like this guy just has these fixed blade knives and he's just like juggling them like some kind of crazy person. That was the image I had in right. my head. I, Sorry. I, I'm, Sorry. No, I've, no. I've actually, I've actually grabbed, a, I've got a little Leatherman. Um, uh, what is the skeletal in my hand right now? I'm just kind of opening and closing the pliers on sure. it. You know? so, yeah, no, so, it's I, I didn't yeah. I didn't think you you were yeah. you had double butterfly knives and you're just like walking around the yeah, house, but yeah. but I just mean like in the sense that you know like you you do you're doing these certain things. You have these bags. I'm sure they know that you have a bag packed for them. Like, how do they yeah, feel about look, that I stuff? Mean, <laughs> they um, they have grown up around it. My wife is supportive. My wife is not what I would consider a prepper. She doesn't consider herself a prepper, yeah. but she is very supportive of the fact that I am. Um, and yeah. also the fact that I'm reasonable about it and I don't go overboard and, you know, I'm not out trying to, you know, bankrupt this by, you know, 
putting in, you know, building some kind of off-grid compound or something, right? Yeah. So, um, so the kids, for their part, uh, they get what this is, and they get that it's about self-reliance and that it's about uh, capabilities and skills and being able to do things. And they also like that the gear is theirs and it's kind of grown-up gear. So my kids... Mm. Uh, we live on 17 acres and I let them run around and jump in the creek and I let them have knives and cut, you know, branches and things and, you know, whatever it is they want to do. Like they all know how to start a fire. Um, they know how to shoot guns. They ride horses. Uh, a lot of them know, you know, basic first aid. And these are kind of like fun capability type things and the younger ones that are um you know just turned eight and just turned 10 um so that you know as six-year-olds as seven-year-olds they think it's cool that they have a bag that's like a nice bag it's like a note it was like i use go rough bags with all the kids those are nice bags they're high mm -hmm. quality um the knife that's in there is theirs it's not my knife that i put in their pack that's their knife yeah. that's their matches those are their, um, you know, tender, tender things for fire starting. They, if they want to come up here and grab a pack and go out in the backyard and, you know, start a fire. Um, I mean, their older sister is going to supervise them, but like, that's a thing that they would get to do. And they've come into the office before. They like to come into the office and pull one of them out and just kind of go through it because it's their stuff. And they like, you yeah. know, kids like stuff and kids also like um, feeling empowered. And they're like, this pack has my stuff in it and it enables me to do all these kind of cool things that a lot of other kids don't get to do. Other kids don't get to start fires. They don't get to have knives. You know, they don't go on, you know, family camping trips or, or you know, shoot guns or whatever. And they like, or ride horses. They like that they get to do that stuff. Yeah, I mean, the idea that you could be a kid and you could get to start a fire. I mean, just even that in general is pretty exciting. I mean, what kid doesn't want yeah, to start a fire? Exactly. Yeah. And, and luckily they're not boys. So they're not constantly just trying to burn everything, you know? So I was going to say too, it's, it's interesting that you're doing this with three daughters where I would imagine giving three young boys, just a bag full of knives. You're like, that could go. I feel like girls are more responsible. You know, they're, they're, they, they probably take it. They must take it way more serious than I would imagine a young boy would at that age. You know, it'd be, it'd be a little bit more difficult. I would have, yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to really have different set of strategies around this stuff. If I had boys, yeah. because boys are just really physical and careless and like every time boys come over for a play date they leave and something's broken <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a there's a hole in the screen something's head has come off um yeah. you know something has been knocked over and like that's boys sure. and i'm I, you know i'm not used to it anymore i'm like what is wrong with you my wife is <laughs> like it's he's just a boy he's just yeah. like you're just not used to boys oh sure but, uh, i mean yeah, obviously, just growing up. I mean, come on. It's like I was always breaking. You're just breaking shit. You're getting oh, hurt. Yeah. It's like you're cutting yourself. I mean, I could I could count on two hands the amount of times I've cut things and, you know, it's yeah, it's, it's I, I, I honestly think you're probably better off with that type of lifestyle with with girls. I think I'm sure yeah, I'm sure they take it a lot more serious. Yeah, it's easier. I mean, my oldest daughter has has gotten a couple of stitches in her finger um, yeah. from using her knife um and you know but that's just part of it man totally. um, you know you get bit and you learn not to do it again i mean she knows proper knife knife handling and 
she was obviously violating um, some of those rules when she yeah. cut herself and uh, she paid for it. And now she has a little scar. So. Absolutely. Um, all right. We got a few more minutes here. I know you got, we got to get you out of here on time. So um, there's just a few other like quick little things. I mean, um, obviously COVID was like kind of an interesting, crazy time to live, live in. Did you, do you feel like that was like almost like a test run for like a lot of preppers or like, do you think that maybe like woke up a lot of people to maybe get involved in, in, in prepping um, just based off of, you know, the whole world sort of shut down for a while there. I mean, I don't think anybody was saw that coming, um, you know, to, to be prepared for, you know, your family is one thing, but then when you find out that the whole world is sort of shutting down, I mean, I don't know, you can't really prepare for that. Um, do you feel like that was kind of like a pre, like a, um, you know, like a test run almost? I would have said uh, six months ago, and I probably did say six months or a year ago, yeah, for sure, a lot more people are coming into prepping. Um, that's true still. A lot more people are coming into prepping. But I think what I would, how I would qualify that now mm -hmm. and is I would say that there's two categories of people. Uh, there are the people that are sort of woken up to the fragility of, of modern life and modern infrastructure. And there are people who have kind of had the opposite impact from COVID. They're like, okay, well, we had a pandemic and I was fine and the system worked and I can, I can still get French fries. Sure. So like prepping is like really stupid. Like I, I thought it was stupid before, like now I'm really going to make fun of those people because we had a whole global pandemic and Hey, look, man, the lights are still on. You guys are dumb. So I've encountered that uh, for sure. I've encountered that reaction. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like a real genre of reaction. And that's a kind of person that's out there. So I think, yeah, I think things have gone two ways. The, the market has grown. A lot more people are wiser. Frankly, I think the, um, I think the fires and the Austin freeze and a lot of the climate stuff that's going on is probably a bigger factor uh, really than a more persistent factor than COVID. Because like I said, COVID yeah. was bad, but people survived COVID and especially the kind of chattering classes and the tweeting classes survived COVID pretty well. Um, you know, I mean, if, if the, the real lesson of COVID was like have, have a couple extra months cash on hand, you know, yeah. you didn't need your bug out bag or most of what's in it to survive COVID. You didn't need um, camping gear or axes or shotguns or anything like that to survive COVID. You just needed extra cash and a stash of food. And yeah. so, yeah, so I think, so I, I think, so like I said, I think there's two, there's two things going on and, and both of those things are real. I don't know which one's larger, um, but, but I think that the people that are in the other camp of, Hey, look, the system totally worked. Everything is, it, it proved that everything is great. Um, you know, they may get surprised on the next one. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like, I mean, I don't know, maybe it, it's a, the next one's another hundred years from now or who know, who knows, man. But uh, at least for me, it's like such a wake up call that how quickly things could just change like that. You know, it's, it's mm -hmm. pretty, it's, it's absolutely, it's pretty wild. Um, and then you, we, we, we spoke about these, these bug out bags. Um, and I, I don't, I don't need you to go through the whole list of what's, what's in them. I'm more kind of interested in like for someone like me, like if I was going to maybe like become a beginner at this or, or whatever, 
um, wh- what are some things, maybe like the t- top five things that like you think everybody should have at home? Like, what are those, what are those items that you think everybody should just have to be prepared no matter what? Well, you know, you just, you kind of want to go down the order of needs. And so you need air, you need oxygen. Mm-hmm. So have, have some kind of filters, have some N95s, you know, have, have face masks, have things that are going to help you. Um, get clean air and clean oxygen um, when when you need it. Um, have potable water. Uh, a lot of people have big plans to drink out of their toilet or out of their water <laughs> heater, or you know the the tank on the toilet has has drinkable water in it. You know, not the bowl, yeah. but um, you know people have these hot hot plans, and and you can't always rely on that. That may get damaged um, in a tornado or an earthquake. You know, um, so so have dedicated containers of water and of course have water filtration so get so get your air sorted get your water sorted um get your food sorted have two weeks in minimum of food on hand so you know that's where you're going to start um hygiene is is a big big killer this is one of the main killers and they talk about i think i forget the three ages it's heat hygiene um, I, I guess I should know these uh, these acronyms, but you know, you're, when you're in the woods, your your hygiene is a top three worry, along with like you know preserving body heat. So so sure. have 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 that um, first aid stuff and the hygiene stuff and the ability to disinfect and to clean wounds. You know, have all that stuff there, um, and to just be able to keep yourself from from getting too um, too funky. You know, because that's a health risk. I mean, if you get a cut, you know, and you're not clean. Sure. So, so those are all those are all pieces of it. So you know, once you've got air, water, food, hygiene, um, you know, you can look at your clothing situation. You can look at extra shelter like a tarp, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, all of that is kind of bug in stuff. You also want to get a go bag ready, and you can start on the cheap. You don't want to buy the pre made go bag kits. A lot of people sell them. Uh, I would not go there. Uh, there are lists at the prepared.com. Um, we don't sell any of that stuff. We make affiliate um, cuts on some of it. Mm-hmm. But what you'll find when you go through the list is that there are many things that we recommend that we can't affiliate link. We just recommend it because it's the best and we, regardless of the fact that we can't take a cut off it. Yeah. And so all the stuff that you see on the prepared.com uh, is the stuff that we use and have in our own bags. There's literally nothing on there that's like, um, even the cheap options. And and I, I realize I'm kind of plugging the site, but no, no, it's great. This Please is all plug it, This man. is all true. I mean, there's nothing on the site that's even the budget option that I wouldn't be be totally happy with for myself or my family in an emergency. There's like basically no kind of like, well, you know, we list this cheapo knife, but really if you can get, you know, the better one because this thing is kind of junk, there's none of that. Like, like we'll just not have a budget option before we'll recommend some junk. Yeah. So, so you can go on there at the site, you can look at the bug out bag builds, you can look at the budget picks and you can start to put something together for a couple hundred dollars. And so you want that bag after you've got those basics of, of water and food and air and shelter and, and clothing and stuff kind of sorted then you want to start to go through the, the bug out bag list and put that together so that, so that you have mobility. Because the thing that a bug out bag gives you really is optionality. Um, it gives you the option to bail. It gives you the option to be mobile and to go and to move to, and to be on the move. 
Yeah. Um, and that's the, that's one of the main things that you're going to want in a disaster is you're going to want optionality. For sure. Well, John, I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with me, man. Um, how, how long you think until you're the, you're the dad in the nuclear bunker, just sitting out there, just, just relaxing and just waiting, <laughs> just hanging yeah. out. How, how, much, how much longer t- you got until that's, that's you. I, I don't know, man. You know, I don't, I don't have a bunker. I would like one. It'd be great. It'd be a nice yeah. project. I, I would, I would use it as a cheese cave. Um, <laughs> I would like to have a cheese cave slash slash bunker. Wait, what, what is a cheese? What is a cheese cave? What's where you, it's where you keep your cheeses, man. I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> what do you think? I thought, I thought it was like an acronym for something. I don't, I don't know. No, no. It's, it's where, it's where a man keeps his, his wheels of cheese. Uh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Your your, so, your your cheese slash bomb shelter. I, I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. So I would I would like to have one as a, as a cheese cave and bomb shelter. But you know, barring that, like I, I think it's going to be a while. Yeah. Fair enough. All right, man. Well, I really do appreciate it. Thanks for uh, letting let me kind of just grill you on on prepping, and it's it, this is really interesting and super fun. And and thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. I enjoyed it.